is Thursday, November 7th. This is Kurt Kovac here from Politics NC with Gary Pierce, downtown Raleigh. Gary, how are you? I'm doing great. So it's been a pretty busy week in North Carolina politics, I'd say. I think since the last time we met, or I guess it was right before then that Biden was in town. He went to Durham uh, two weekends ago, I guess now. And then I believe uh, today Elizabeth Warren was at... Uh, was it NCANT? I think she was. Uh, I think she was there. She's also at my alma mater high school, Broughton High School in Raleigh, this uh, afternoon. I knew she was in the Raleigh area. So obviously, people are starting to pay attention to North Carolina in the in terms of the presidential primary, which you have to focus on the initial states of Iowa, New Hampshire, Nevada, and South Carolina, and that's the initial gauntlet people have to go through. But then. Uh, Super Tuesday, North Carolina is involved in that. There are a ton of delegates up for grabs on Super Tuesday, and North Carolina is going to be a very important state for that. Um, I wonder your thoughts about the North Carolina primary in particular and maybe uh, any good anecdotes from primaries days gone by? You know, we hadn't always mattered that much in primaries before. I think um, maybe in 2008, Obama, that this was pretty important for him. But we're early. Actually, we're less than four months from now, March the 5th. Um, and we're under 100 days until Iowa. Yeah. So it's very soon. And um, there's Iowa, New Hampshire, I think Nevada has caucuses. South Carolina primary is the Saturday before ours. Ours yeah. is Tuesday. And we're with, a, what are there, maybe a dozen states, big California, ones, yeah. and, and some really big ones. Um, but I think we'll get attention because we come right after South Carolina. It's easy to to stop here. And that could be a, you, you know, you can see a scenario, let's assume Iowa or New Hampshire is good for a Warren or a Sanders. Um, then Joe Biden really has to come back in a South Carolina or North Carolina, because that, that you would think those would be the places where he would do the best. So there could be a lot of pressure on him coming here. And if somebody else is emerging then, apart from those big three, well, like a Buddha judge, well, how would a Buddha judge do in North Carolina primary is different from a general election, but we could really be in a position to play a pretty important role this year, next year. Well, so obviously the the primary is the first battle these these folks have to get through. But then uh, in the general election, North Carolina obviously is one of a handful of states that really matter. And I know there was a uh, much talked about poll from the New York Times that looked at some of those head to heads. Uh, Trump versus a Warren or a Sanders or a Biden. And uh, the Democrat did not lead in any of those polls, I believe, in North Carolina uh, head to head. Right. I think Trump was up to now, margin of error. But do you have any thoughts about what a Democrat might be able to do head to head against Trump in North Carolina? And is it is it going to have to be a certain type of Democrat? Or do you think North Carolina is just going to get swept into a national sort of election. This is, you know, every Democrat is talking about this now, and it's really important. It's not just that we care about who the nominee is going to be, but whoever the nominee is is going to play a big role in how well we do in state races. Um, you know, there's a lot of interest. What Democrats are saying now is for the first time in a long time, they'll be running in fair districts. Districts that aren't gerrymandered, that aren't unconstitutional, that they have a fair shot at winning. So they have a shot at winning majority in the House and maybe even in the state Senate. But it's going to be huge who the nominee is. We've, and we've talked about it here before. It's hard to run more than four or five points ahead 
of your party's nominee. I think what that or the um, New York Times poll, which is a fascinating poll, all political junkies should study it carefully, of the six battleground states, I think maybe Biden was two points behind Trump here. Um, Sanders may be about the same, and Elizabeth Warren about four points behind. And if you, what's interesting to me is as I talk to people around the state, there's a clear generational divide. It may be as my generation of boomers against your generation of younger voters. Uh, a lot of the people my age who went through the battles, what they're really conditioned by, we're all prisoners of our history, is um, elections where Democrats were dragged down by George McGovern or Walter Mondale or Michael Dukakis, and they're Super really, liberal. yeah, they're really focused on that. And so, a lot of those people, older people, say we need a Biden, a more moderate, more reassuring candidate, and they say that a, a Warren, certainly a Sanders, they consider way too liberal for North Carolina. But then I talk to younger people who are active in politics, and their reaction is more. Well, I don't get excited at all about Joe Biden. I mean, that's like going back to the past. We need big change, and we need somebody who's going to excite a lot of new voters and bring in a lot of new voters, which means a lot of younger voters, a lot of minority voters. Although Biden, you know, one of his real strengths is with, is with minority voters. So I think there's a real generational divide about that. And what that comes down to is, is your goal in an election, is your strategy to focus on converting a fairly, not fairly, a very narrow slice of undecided swing voters in the middle? Or is your focus to reshape the electorate and bring in a lot of new voters who maybe would be more open to a more progressive candidate? Now, that's one reason. I'm going to be very interested. I expect Elizabeth Warren will get a great reception in Raleigh. I'd be really interested in what kind of reception she gets at A&T because neither she or Sanders have shown any sign, or Buttigieg, have shown any sign of being able to attract minority voters. Yeah, and that's, uh, that's obviously been an issue for them, and that's a real question of uh, the order of the primary as well because you start with an Iowa and a New Hampshire that are very white, very liberal, and then you jump to Nevada and South Carolina that both are more reflective of the country, but also the Democratic Party base, because it really is uh, built uh, with a foundation of African-American voters across the country and particularly in the South. So that was the trick for an Obama in 08 to win. And he kept it close in 2012. It was a very tight election. And uh, even in 2016, Hillary Clinton didn't quite do as well, obviously, as Obama, but it was still a close race. And that was something I saw. And we can get to the Kentucky race here in a second. But um, Mississippi also had a race for governor, and they had uh, an incumbent attorney general, uh, I think Hood, uh, was as a Democrat, and he was running for governor. And there was a bit of a case study in, in how can a Democrat compete in the Deep South because uh, there was a candidate for Senate there last year, I think it was um, SB, I think it was African-American mm -hmm. candidate, and he lost by, say, six or seven but African-American turnout went up a lot. Mm -hmm. For Hood, he lost by five or six, uh, but he did better in the rural areas. Right. So how can you circle that square or square that circle? Because 
you can't really do both, it seems, unless you have a very particular candidate that maybe comes in the form of, you know, uh, a sea change like uh, Obama, who can just really excite his own coalition of voters and everybody tries to replicate that. And I think that's an issue Republicans will have with Trump, like the governor who lost in Kentucky. Only Trump can run as Trump and really be effective. So a lot of people, I think, are trying to mimic him and parrot the way he runs as a Republican, but that only works for him, it seems, unless you're in a, a safe red district. But in, in Kentucky's went by 30 to Trump yeah. and, and that their governor lost, even as Republicans did extremely well down ballot on that. So, I mean, I don't know what the question is here because I, I lost my train of thought with it, but do you see there being room for somebody in the Democratic side that can really bring together those coalitions? Or, you know, is it Biden just relying on the same old coalition to maybe bring us across the finish line just barely? Well, I mean, it's sort of like the Goldilocks question. <laughs> is, right. is there somebody out there who's not too hot, not too cold, but just right and can get everybody? Because in a way, it's it seems to me you're talking about two very different groups. You're talking about an older group of sort of moderate to conservative swing voters who may not like Trump style. And then you're talking about a group of younger, more progressive voters. Um, and, you, you know, you could make an argument either way, and obviously people have won, and it depends on districts and states. Some things work better in one and, and don't work in the other. But it seems to me that long run, the Democrats would be well advised to go with where the growth is going to be, which is going to be with younger voters who are overwhelmingly. Um, I, uh, David McLennan at Meredith College told me there was something like two to one uh, Democratic. Uh, these are millennials and Gen Z. That Why isn't that the future of the Democratic Party? Because if they vote that way and if they continue voting that way and if they continue to react against Trump, and the long-term problem, you flip it around for the Republican Party, is it is now Trump's party. Yeah. And and there may be enough swing voters and enough battleground states, as the New York Times poll showed, that he can once again lose the popular vote, win the Electoral College, and be president again. But th he's depending on a shrinking base. I mean, uh, you know, this country, uh, younger voters are going to be greater in number. Um, minority voters are going to continue to be greater. Uh, the, the future really ought to be with the Democratic Party. So you make an argument there. Why not go ahead now and bet on the future? Well, the, and there is an issue with younger voters, although people tend to prefer a certain party or candidate. Um, you, if you're going to spend money in an election, it's the older voters that actually vote. I mean, younger voters just don't turn out. It's been increasing, and I think that's good. People are getting more engaged and seeing, you know, hey, you know, these are close elections. Every vote really does count. So I, I think that is a challenge for the party moving forward, for both parties, really. And I think there is an issue for Republicans in the sense that there's a good number of people within the party, the Republican Party, who aren't big fans of the president. And I, I, they would never vote for a Democrat, but that doesn't mean they're going to vote for him in re-election. I mean, that was an issue we had with, um, like, Hillary Clinton. It wasn't so much that Trump had these huge numbers of voters because he underperformed Romney, I think, in some places. Just, just people didn't vote for her. Or there were just not that many people excited about either candidate. 
So I think the, the election is surely going to be very interesting in terms of the electorate. I think everybody's anticipating huge turnout next year. But it's all a question of who those people are, obviously. I was listening to um, Cory Booker's campaign manager talking to David Pluff, and apparently the demographic type of voter for Donald Trump, I guess white, um, high school education, you know, probably mostly rural, there are a ton of them that don't vote. And that's part of his strategy mm -hmm. is there's a lot of like the forgotten man, I guess. Mm -hmm. um, if they voted, they'd vote for him. I think that's the, the line of thought. And that was true of uh, the whole Brexit phenomenon is they both sides of that argument started with an understanding that the universe of voters is X million. Right. But the Brexit side said, well, actually, there's a ton of people that would vote for us if they voted, but they don't. And they turned those people out. And suddenly there were just enough new voters to turn the tide of that. And obviously they're still mired in that debacle. But th there is an argument there that there's people who didn't vote for him before who might vote now. And they're definitely not voting for a Democrat. Well, don't ever underestimate the ability of a great candidate or you may not consider him a great candidate, but somebody who inspires a lot of passion. Compelling. To, yeah, a compelling candidate to reshape the electorate. I mean, I think about John Kennedy. For a lot of Republicans, that was Ronald Reagan, 1980, and a lot of young Republicans at the time. And, and a lot of those young Republicans who are now older are precisely the people who are having trouble with Trump. Trump did bring out a lot of rural, high school-educated whites who may not have voted before, just like George Wallace did back in 1968. Obama, I mean, everybody knows he, he created a huge minority turnout, but he also brought out a lot of younger voters who were, who were inspired by him. And he also had sort of another effect, which is a lot of older voters, people like me, who saw how impressed their children were by Obama. And and, and saw something come in there. So, you know, and I think that's Democrats always look for that. You know, we always look for that inspiring and sort of the Kennedy syndrome or something. We want to, another John Kennedy to come along, which is why a lot of people get excited about about Buttigieg. Um, and, you know, that, um, now Bernie Sanders has done that. You know, he may not be to everybody's taste, but he clearly has energized a lot of people who otherwise probably wouldn't be engaged in politics. And we saw it on a much smaller scale, obviously, but I think it's still important, in Raleigh, where, where younger candidates or candidates who were openly gay excited a lot of people and, and helped bring out a lot of new voters. And that you know, fundamentally changed the shape of the Raleigh City Council. That happens in politics. And, and those of us who spend our lives in it tend to underestimate how much things can change and how fast they can change. Well, I might be butchering this line, but I think it goes along the lines of Democrats fall in love and Republicans fall in line. So I, it, there is a concern. Um, and I've, I've seen conservatives write about this, I think, like Jonah um, Goldberg from N NRO. Um, an issue with people making a cult of personality around a figure like a Trump. Well, in the same vein, like an Obama, people want somebody that they think is perfect for the role and they fall in love with the person as opposed to, you know, maybe being pragmatic. Um, I wonder your thoughts about something that's a bit more a process question. And I think this is also something I saw from uh, the NRO. I might need to expand my reading habits some, but the idea that maybe the primary processes in either party are 
I wouldn't say outdated because they're actually relatively new in the in the grand scheme of things. But is there too much democracy in the democratic <laughs> process in terms of um, there's an Atlantic article and the gist of it is, you know, there's so much voter input all the way through the process of selecting a candidate and a nominee. And I think there's some people who are of the mindset that maybe it would be better if people within the parties themselves, like elected officials, and I guess to some degree, like a superdelegate, were the ones who ultimately made that decision. So, I mean, do you think it is better to have a lot more voter input the entire way through? Well, you know, okay, I'll go back because I've got a history on this. Right. Um, and, and the answer is we need a balance of it. You know, where this came from is really from uh, the 1968 primary where um, Robert Kennedy was assassinated. Eugene McCarthy had challenged Johnson. Johnson didn't run. And, and in the end, basically, the party bosses picked Hubert Humphrey. He didn't really go through any primaries. He was the pick. There was a huge rebellion against that. And so th what the party did after Humphrey lost was say, okay, we're going to give you a chance. We're going to have a reform commission. And the Democratic Party got in the habit of after every <laughs> presidential election, we have a reform commission. After 72, it was the McGovern Commission. And a lot of that was take away the power of the bosses and the elected leaders and all to pick and replace it with primaries. And we got McGovern and we got <laughs> creamed. Well, you know, so we sort of went back. When, after, after Jimmy Carter lost in 1980, there was a strong feeling in the Democratic Party, yeah, we've gone too far where it's just primaries. And so my old boss, Jim Hunt, was named by the DNC to chair sort of a count, not a counter-reform, but another iteration of the Reform Commissions. And that's where the infamous superdelegates came from. And the theory there was elected officials, party officials, professionals, if you will, people who spend a lot of time in politics, who know how things work in government, and who have a specialty in being able to evaluate talent you will, and say, that's somebody who would be a good president or that wasn't, ought to have not the deciding voice, but a louder voice in it. And so ever since then, the Democratic Party story has been a debate about whether we go too far one way or too far another. You know, actually, believe it or not, superdelegates were pretty critical to Obama winning the nomination in 2008 because they concluded he was a stronger candidate than Hillary Clinton was going to be. So a lot of them went his way, put him over the top. 2016, Clinton beat Sanders in large measure because the, quote, superdelegates didn't like Sanders. And the Sanders people didn't like that. So now I think we've gone back and we've cut back on, um, on, on the role that the elected officials and party officials could have. So we're always seeking the right balance, and we go back and forth on it. But I think you've got to find a way to both the voice of the people and the voice of people who have some expertise and knowledge and some ability to judge the quality of not just is this a good candidate, but would this be a good president? Right, and I think— I understand there there could be an air of elitism behind that idea that party people should have a heavier hand in the process. But also, if you're talking about superdelegates who are elected at a lower level, it sort of stands to reason that those people would have a better feel for 
what would work in their area because they're the ones that can do it at the local level. You know, if you're a, a state legislator or, or a member of Congress or something, it's like you understand how you could win in that district and you understand who could help you and, and ultimately maybe help your constituents. So I can see the logic on either either side of it. Well, and, you know, the, the argument was people who know how to get elected know how to get elected. And, the, and they can evaluate candidates. But it's more than that. They also know, is this person going to be able to perform once they're in office? And that was part of the reaction to Carter. Carter was a great candidate in 1960, but he really wasn't. A, he was a, a good president. He's really a great president. But he wasn't a good politician as a president. And they left him in a, in a pretty weak position against Reagan in 1980. Well, I'll drift back to something we touched on for a second to wrap up here. But the elections in Kentucky yielded a Democratic governor. And there was, um, I think, like we talked about before, a lot of discussion about what that means for 2020. But I think the real lesson might be more how do state level elections work in the age of Trump, especially in places where Trump is very popular. So for Kentucky, as an example, he, that incumbent governor really pissed off teachers. Mm -hmm. And I think uh, Trying to cut a lot of people off Medicaid, too. Yeah, cut I, them off. there were a lot yeah, of like right. real kitchen table issues that he did not do well on and thought he was going to coast to victory because he was trying to, you know, tie a, a close uh, affiliation with the president there. So uh, do you think there are lessons in, in that? Not so much the whole, you know, narrative of oh, Democrats can win in anywhere, which is true. I mean, that it's proof of it. But I mean, what are the real takeaways from that? Well, I think you got to be cautious. I mean, it doesn't mean Democrats can win anywhere because that was a unique situation. The, the Bashir who won, his father was governor. The incumbent Republican, like you said, was enormously unpopular. Trump carried Kentucky by 30 and probably would do so again, and you know, he, he wouldn't have won. It's sort of like, you know, after Doug Jones won in Alabama, somebody said, well, it was pretty funny, he said, well, we Democrats have proven we can win anywhere in the country so long as we can run against a child molester. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's what it comes down to in some places, I guess, is unfortunate. But it's also a testament to, uh, you know, like Democrats in 2018, I know we talked about right before, um, if you don't run somebody everywhere, you can't win. And that was something that rebounded to the benefit of Virginia Democrats, where they needed just to pick up a few seats to take the majority in their state Senate, say, and they didn't have to even defend 15 of the, you know, 21 that they needed. So those resources could go to races that really mattered. And I think that'll be something to watch for in North Carolina next year. Maybe some of these Republicans who lost a very close election, they might not seek that seat again because those districts are probably trending away from them anyways. Um, if Democrats can defend fewer seats and go on the offensive, that definitely improves their odds, especially when they're not having to waste money on seats that they're going to win anyways. Well, you made you made that point earlier. It's something I hadn't thought about. But in, in 2018, the Democrats here ran somebody in every district, all 170 districts. So even Republicans who were like Speaker Moore, who was probably going to win, he had to spend money and work in his district. He couldn't help somebody in Charlotte or in in Raleigh. I think that's important to do again. I didn't realize that many Democrats were unopposed in uh, Virginia, and that was a huge advantage because then they can raise money, and the money can go to help other people in the caucus. There's, there's one other factor I want to mention about Virginia that struck me. Michael Bloomberg's group, the, the gun rights, the gun um, laws group, uh, Everytown USA, yeah. spent a huge amount of money 
in Virginia and helped elect a lot of Democrats there. And they they were really instrumental in that. So I think it's going to be interesting to see what kind of uh, gun safety laws Virginia passes and what the reaction is to that. Well, but it I, looks like they beat the NRA. Yeah, and it's well, I, I know a lot of people look at Virginia as sort of a an early indicator for things that happen in North Carolina. Now, I don't expect it to have a trifecta after next year, but there is that bit of a, a trend. Uh, obviously, Northern Virginia has a lot of people that move there from outside of Virginia uh, to work in D.C., and that's a certain type of person and a certain type of uh, voter. But I think that relates back to something you and I discussed, I think, last week. There are people moving here from out of state, and they don't necessarily – uh, come here and adopt the politics that exist already. So as people move in from out of state, it's going to affect the politics. Now, which direction it goes, that's hard to say, but uh, they're different people than just normal North Carolinians. i, I tell you what strikes me about Virginia, and this is again another function of age here. It's okay boomer moment, right? <laughs> I, I, I can't help but think when I watch Virginia, this is Virginia. I mean, this was, you know, the the, the capital of the Confederacy, Robert E. Lee, Stonewall Jackson. In the 1950s, it was the center of what they call massive resistance to school desegregation. There were counties in Virginia that literally shut down their public schools rather than, rather than to integrate them. And, and now to come around and see Virginia become a, a progressive democratic state just really shows you how much things can change in politics, sometimes a lot faster than you think they can. Right. Well, I guess we'll call it there, see what's going on next week. I know we didn't even touch the budget at all, but uh, I don't think there's any progress being made on that front, to be honest. I think that's going to fight that out next year in the election. <laughs> <laughs>